Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, first it was Alibaba, Jack Ma's Alibaba and his ant financial Chinese regulators blocking that IPO, sending shivers through the big Chinese technology sector. Then Didi, China's crackdown on the ride-hailing service um, just days after Didi went public, again in the U.S., really sending, again, chills through the entire tech sector, particularly those Chinese domiciled companies that are listed in the West, and people are really trying to get a sense of what is behind uh, the Chinese government and their crackdown seemingly on these companies. Came in uh, domicile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, really getting uh, you know listings in the West. So when we have questions about anything China, we go to Leland Miller. He's the CEO of China Beige Book International. Leland, again, at first I thought it was just Jack Ma mismanaging or misreading his relationship with the Chinese regulators, but it seems to be something much broader than that. What's going on? Well, that's the interesting thing about this issue. You've got a whole bunch of different subdramas playing out across the, the Chinese tech sphere and the, and the, the, listing, you know, the, the listing universe. We have Jack Ma and Ann Financial, and you've got all these this, this story that's developing on Didi and how they ignored regulators. I think the, the broader story here is that China is, is really forcing a paradigm shift. There's a lot of worry that these, these firms are going to go list abroad and they're going to be subject to U.S. rules or, or foreign rules, and they're not going to be safeguarding their data, which should be in China and subject to Chinese rules. So what, what Beijing is doing right now uh, is, is, is enforcing Beijing's view on this. That this these data are, are, these are Chinese companies. This will be Chinese data. This will be stored in China. And uh, I think this is, this is finally the lesson that, that foreign investors need to hear in terms of realizing that what the Chinese government has been saying, it's real. They mean what they're saying and that there are real long-term implications here. Yeah, Leland, to me, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if I were China, I feel like I would do it too. If I were the U.S., I would wonder what what to do about this. Um, we had a great Bloomberg story overnight that um, showed somebody has been circulating a couple of charts illustrating traffic at the Ministry of Public Security was really busy on a certain day while um, the anti-corruption agency wasn't using any cars. And it just flipped a switch for me. You can use big data to really track some stuff that gets – that, that, that the country might want to keep secret, you know, and not just with Didi, but also probably you can do the same with TikTok, you know, where all the teenagers are, what they're doing, you know, what they're buying. It just seems like you, you would want to get a handle on this and not let foreign investors access it. Right. And, and you know, when you're talking about big data, there are insights you can glean from big data, and then there are ways to use data 
to influence certain populations. That's, of course, what we were talking about with TikTok, the potential there for them to send political messages subtly or not through into the, into the, into the Western environments. Uh, but yeah, look, the, the, the risks with big data are, are just developing, and China is, is very cognizant of what it doesn't want to be, uh, you know, a face it doesn't want to be showing the rest of the world. So, so again, this, this is just a, a gigantic issue going forward. So Leland, you know, we love to have you on because you help us really see the big picture as it relates to U.S. and China relations. As we pull back here and think about it, is this just, I guess, another example of a building tech cold war between the U.S. and China? Yeah, look, every time anyone uses a term like that, there's, you know, a thousand academics that rush in and say, no, no, look, it's not a Cold War. It's different than the last one. You know, decoupling. There's not a real U.S.-China financial decoupling in the broadest sense. But sure, I mean, look, if you're you're just trying to get an understanding of directionality here, yes, you're seeing all these, uh, you know, you're seeing this this Cold War-esque environment develop, and you are seeing some elements of financial decoupling. The U.S. has an enormous amount of leverage, particularly because Chinese companies like to list in the U.S., and it has used that leverage, not, not always and, and not enough, you know, in the case of audits, for instance, but it is used to, for, for its compliance regime to be the default. And what China is saying is, no, our companies will not be subject to that. They will be subject to a Chinese compliance regime overall at the top layer. And the problem with this is it's not entirely clear that a lot of companies who, in, who operate in China and the United States and other places can actually adhere to the law that is both Chinese law and the U.S. law. Something has to give, and it's not clear at all what that's going to be. You know, this all happened right around the same time we saw yields start to um, drop in the U.S. for six days in a row, seven days in a row, eight days in a row. And then Jim O'Neill was on... Bloomberg Television, I think it was yesterday morning, telling Francine Lacroix that um, that China is really the the, the catalyst for the, um, the the flight to safety. Maybe not the data issue or the DD issue specifically, but concerns about growth, concerns about what's happening post one hundred year anniversary. Um, what's going on there? Do do we do we do we know enough about Chinese growth and how strong it is the recovery from uh, COVID? Sure. We know a lot about it, uh, Chinese growth. And the problem is that not enough people are listening. You know, you we, know a lot about it. <laughs> we don't know. That's why we have you on. Well, you know, look, the, the issue since China emerged, you know, that with, with, with quotations around emerged from, from the coronavirus uh, and, and, and it's, you know, into this very impressive recovery was that Beijing announced this recovery as way more intense than it actually was. They did a great job. They did better than anyone else. That's fine. But it was never a a, a soaring recovery. What they did is pull growth forward from 2021 and announce year-on-year growth and basically signal that there's a return to normalcy because the party conquered the virus. And what the real story was is that, yes, they got stimulus out there and they did a good crackdown uh, to, to, to take out outbreaks, but there was never a durable recovery on the consumption side. Services has been treading water. Retail has been doing very poorly. Consumption more broadly has been doing very poorly, particularly in the latest China Beige Book data. Our credit data are shockingly tight right now. You know, our, our, our investment data are down. So, yes, you were seeing some of these numbers early on that suggested that you know, China's back. China's not back in the sense that it, it's where it was before. And now you're seeing people finally get the worries and realize that, look, 
getting up, uh, factories up and running and exports up and running is good, but it's not sustainable if they can't get the consumption side of the economy back working again. This is why it's great to get uh, you on the program, Leland. We should have you on more often because I think, you know, for, for a while, markets kind of lost sight um, the last few weeks, the last few months of what was going on in China. Yeah. And then all of a sudden got wind of it. And as a result, we saw a 10-year yield um, in U.S. Treasuries at 123. So Leland Miller is the CEO of China Beige Book International talking to us about the big data, uh, the, the control of big data and – um, the growth situation post-pandemic. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We have been asking, I've been asking the same question for days <laughs> and days and days. And I know that we've seen things turn around a little bit now, but Paul, treasuries are still I mm, yielding years very still little. Below 2%? Yeah, and 134.78 in the 10-year. I mean, yes, it's a bounce back from yesterday. We were down, what was the lowest we hit? Like 123 was the yep, bottom yep. tick. Um, in any case, it's still a conundrum to me. Just heard, uh, just heard Mohammed El Arian talk about it. Let's bring in Jordan Jackson to ask him. He's vice president and global market strategist for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Jordan, you know, I don't just ask these questions. I was up past midnight reading people's theories online. Not just you know crazy people on Reddit, but uh, you know smart market technicians. I still don't get it. It doesn't seem to jive with um, a view that the economy is uh, strong and picking up and we're going to see real growth for the next couple of years. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, if anyone tells, says that they are absolutely 100% accurate in, in why yields are where they are, I think, I think that's a long shot. But I think there's a confluence of things that are happening that are causing or that have caused this, this reversal in, in yields. And, you know, one is the, the supply side of the equation. If we think about what's happened over pretty much the course of the first half of the year, you've seen a significant drawdown in the Treasury general account. So the Treasury Department has not been funding additional fiscal stimulus by way of issuing new Treasury bonds. It's by way of drawing down the, the Treasury General uh, the Treasury General account, and what that does is that increases bank reserves in the system, just that mechanical aspect. And so, what we actually have seen is, you know, from from banks, you know, as as reserves have increased in the banking system, that money's got to find itself somewhere. Typically, it finds its way at the front end of the curve. But what we have been observing more recently is that those flows have actually been making their way to the back end of the curve uh, as well. So there's, there's, there's been some strong demand from banks as well as from, from foreign investors as well. I talked about how the, the roll down of the Treasury general account 
At the same time, the Fed is still purchasing $80 billion a month in treasuries. You've actually seen net negative supply of treasury issuance come to the market as well. So you can sort of paint yourself a supply and demand picture in which you've got essentially demand outpacing pacing supply. That's put down with pressure on yields. I think there was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy through the first half or the first quarter of the year that yields were going to rise in the back half. Growth was going to be stronger in the second half of the year than it was going to be in the first half of the year. And so you had this 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 broad market narrative of a steepening yield curve. And I think folks were positioned as such. Um, and so you had some shorts come onto the market. I think some of those shorts had to unwound themselves as yields started to grind lower. Um, and so the, a lot of these factors kind of funneling into to, to the move lower from a technical perspective, the move lower in bond yields. All right, Jordan, given where we are uh, in the yield market, what are you telling your clients in terms of if they're looking for a return here, they just got to go the equity markets, don't they? What are you hearing from your clients? Uh, that's that's pretty much what, what we're seeing. I mean, re- the reality is the fixed income landscape, it's kind of like trying to look for um, the cheapest house on a really expensive block. <laughs> um, and we're trying to generate alpha. It's, it's, we don't want to trick ourselves into trying to pick up pennies in front of a steamroller. I mean, that's just where credit spreads are at, um, um, given the, the, the impact of that everyone's searching for yield. There's a lot of cash out there and not enough bonds. Um, and so, look, if you do have to sort of start to look uh, towards the equity market for 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 yields, um, hedge type of strategies to sort of mitigate some of some of the downside risk, um, and and even looking at some of the um, sort of hybrid securities. You know, you think preferreds, um, given bank stocks are the primary issuers of preferred stocks. Uh, C car results came out a couple of weeks ago. Those were those were very encouraging. Uh, we're going to get some reports uh, coming through from an earnings perspective. We think bank balance sheets are, are very very strong. So preferred preferreds look like they could be a good spot uh, for for income uh, income as well. And then on the convertible side, we do think some of the more um, equity like convertibles, although since they have run up pretty significantly um, over over the, the the past twelve months or so. Um, we still think there are some some interesting opportunities uh, in that space as well. Is um, the U.S. going to continue to outperform? Do you, do you start to put more of your bets on in, for example, emerging markets as they start to well as they eventually will um, reopen and recover? So it's, it's it's interesting. It's kind of like I, if if I'm going to think about global equity markets, where is the baton going to be passed to next? Sort of started the sort of started the conversation that folks generally thought that growth was going to be particularly exceptional in the second half of the year. We actually may be looking at peak growth in the second quarter of this year, particularly here in the U.S. Now we still are expecting above trend growth in the second half, but a certain deceleration from sort of the 10 percent quarter over quarter pace that we're expecting here in, in in the second quarter. Now, where does the baton get passed to? I do think right. that the next sort of, 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 of equity market, global equity market, is going to be sort of Europe and, and Japan. Um, you know, as, as they get over their, right. their, their COVID curve yep. over the next few months here, you should start to see some of that cyclical trade, right. that reflation trade, bring itself back into the market. Hey, Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Jordan Jackson, Vice President, Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. All right, you've heard of venture capital. You've heard maybe even of venture equity. But how about venture debt? Dan Dvorsetz, CIO and Executive Vice President for Horizon Technology Fans. They're based in Brookfield, Connecticut. He joins us. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time. What is venture debt? 
Matt and Paul, first of all, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, venture debt is a non-dilutive source of capital for these same venture capital-backed companies that you were referring to. Um, they're, they're development and growth stage companies that are backed by really world-class VC and P investors, and venture debt is secured loans to these companies that provide non-dilutive capital to get them to their next valuation point and raise additional equity at much higher valuations. We provide a, a, mm. an option for, for, for equity. I think it's um, really fascinating because Matt Levine just um, a couple of days ago was writing about how important VCs are, not just as a source of capital, but also as a source of advice. You know, these uh, young kids, or I guess old people could start companies too, um, you know, just get getting into the into the market. They need to know how um, before they IPO to a bunch of strangers, right? Or before they sell debt to a bunch of strangers. So I wonder how, how much you not only loan these companies money, but take them by the, ha- the hand and, and lead them along. So we provide, we certainly provide advice in terms of their financial path. Uh, we don't claim, we, I, I'm not a technologist, I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to tell them how to, how to do their clinical trials, but I will cert- we'll certainly help them with advice on, on financing alternatives. Um, and, and venture debt is, is one that, that sometimes, sometimes entrepreneurs need, need um, education on, that, that you, can, you can raise equity and, and uh, sell off, you know, let's say, let's say you're, you're developing the next great drug, and your company's valued at $100 million, and it's going to take $30 million of new capital to get to that next valuation point when, you're, when, you, when you get approval. You can sell $30 million of equity and sell 30% of your, of your shares, or you can sell $20 million of equity, take a 10 million dollar venture loan and when you hit that next valuation inflection point you'll have preserved tens of millions of dollars for your management team and your investors so we provide that certainly provide that type of advice to our to our companies all right dan back in the day i was a corporate finance banker at the chase manhattan bank we lost deals to nobody back in the day we had (laughs) swagger but we lent against either assets like property plant and equipment or inventory or cash flow the good stuff that actually pays you back VC companies don't have any of that stuff. So what's the collateral for some of this debt? Cash flow. I don't know what cash flow is. I was going <laughs> to say. Really You're so don't. old, Paul. Our, our company, our ca- our, we have cash flow, but it's going, it's going out of the company. Our companies are cash burn companies. Uh, so we are lending against the enterprise value of the company. We take a senior secured position in all assets of the, of the company. Certainly cash is, is, is a big piece of it, but, but I, as I said, that is draining. Uh, we are looking at the intellectual property. We're looking at the, at the franchise value. We're oh, looking I can at, never at get growing that past revenue. My exactly, exactly. Yeah, but you never got that kind of opportunity then, right? We took no, more. What, kind of, what kind of yields are you getting, Dan? We are we are lending. So we have uh, premium yields in the in, in the the loan terms. We get interest rates as well as fees that are in the uh, eleven to thirteen percent. Then we take Whoa. small small exactly. Then we take small warrant positions um, in in all of our companies. Uh, so as they do succeed, uh, we can we can get some capital appreciation on the, yeah. on, the, on the success stories. That's the trade off right there. That's the I play. Mean, look at yeah, the took, look at what the guys got the um, who lent money to uh, Robinhood, which is the. Precursor oh, to me? anything on the wireless side. I, 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 I lost that. Can you repeat that? I apologize. 
No, no, we're all good. Anyway, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We're just out of time. Dan Dvorsets, uh from uh, you know giving us some thoughts here on this venture. Horizon Debt, Technology CIO, Finance. Executive VP of Horizon Technology Finance. Yeah, back in the day, um, it was either you got to have some assets or you got to have some cash flow, Matt. Of course, of course. But you weren't getting 13%. Well, maybe you were, depending – I guess in the 80s, that, that was uh, – at that time, my parents were paying a 17% uh, <laughs> exactly. mortgage. Um, all right. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. There's been a lot of talk about Bitcoin today. On CNBC, Scott Minard said it's in a crash right now and he sees no reason to own it. Um, And our next guest says it is... An ecological disaster. James Rossay joins us, CIO and founding partner at Coast Capital. Um, so, James, your take on this, I mean, it's from the uh, mining point of view, a very dirty business. Um, and But you also think that gold is a much, what, cleaner alternative? Um, I think cleaner alternative is not nice to be with you. Cleaner alternative is not uh, – Look, any human endeavor uh, results in carbon emission and an erosion in the environment, if not offset property, right? So there's nothing you can do literally that doesn't have an environmental impact, and that can be described as having a negative environmental impact. The problem that we have with Bitcoin and why we think the value is zero, although the price may be what it is, is that not only is it an ecological disaster, I think it's a monetary disaster, and it is bound to fail. The reason why we think Bitcoin is bound to fail is because well, first of all, you can't. It's very difficult to conduct transactions with cryptocurrencies, and we were told by the Bitcoin prophets, um, who you know, I must admit, sound a lot less like prophets and like um, uh, promoters of a product that no one can, has figured out how to use. Um, you know, we were told that it would become a, a basically a fungible with money, that it would become a monetary instrument, and it has failed to do that. And then we were told it's not going to be money; it's too cumbersome to use. It takes. 30 minutes to effect payment for a Tesla using Bitcoin, but it's a store of value and it's going to appreciate, you know, at inflationary times, which we certainly are in. Now, if you look at concerns about... Well, it has, you can't deny that it's appreciated. I mean, look at how it high. We're, it's trading at $33,000. It certainly has. But when you look at when inflation began to make itself felt, which was, you know, three, four months ago... Um, Bitcoin has halved since then. It was supposed to react. Oh, you're just looking well. at a very short window, though. I mean, you know, well, step I, back you know, for a look, moment. I, I, sure. Uh, look, time will tell wh- where this thing ends. But here's one thing that I think is difficult to argue against. 
Bitcoin will be superseded by another um, cryptocurrency or by a, by, a, by a more attractive one that um, does not have some of the flaws that Bitcoin has. And that could be Ethereum. And in fact, it looks like it is Ethereum. And Ethereum itself will be unseated by another cryptocurrency that will not have some of the short shortcomings that Ethereum has. And so why would I commit my savings to Bitcoin, you know? So I hear I, I hear this argument. I, I think it's it's a fair argument for sure. So James, I, I guess you know I'm not a, in in the a big Bitcoin believer. I, th- I think you know my colleague Matt has really been covering it since the absolute beginning here. But my yeah. understanding is it's a commodity and it's a commodity with a fixed supply and presumably mm-hmm. ever increasing demand from more use cases. For that argument suggests. That's the weaker the argument. I mean, I, th- I think James has a great point yeah. that we were told at the beginning um, that it was going to be fungible with uh, any other currencies, and that definitely didn't pan out. Now, there are yeah. people saying that they're you, you working know, on the use the, cases, yeah. and it can evolve, but it's pretty big and cumbersome. That's true. Yeah. Well, the, the, a commodity has value by definition. The one commodity that people say may, may or may not have value is gold, right? And that's where we think actually investors should be investing into. And by the way, gold miners are, from our perspective, the place to be. And the fact that nobody's interested in gold miners and that capital is as scarce as, as can be in this, in this most profitable of industries it, like, is pretty laughable from my perspective. So what we've done is we've put together an advisory board that's made up of some of the leading geologists and mine engineers and gold miners in the world to, attract, to identify the most attractive opportunities in that space. That's what we're betting on. That's where central banks, who know a lot more about currency and monetary affairs than we do, are betting on. I don't see anybody other than El Salvador. What do you think are the best gold miners out there right now, James, or most undervalued uh, maybe? Well, look, we're actually buying them as we speak. We've launched the fund in October. First of all, there's a number of them. We think that we're, we're currently buying them, so we don't necessarily want to uh, talk them up and, and see. But <laughs> you know, I would say that Jaguar Mining, for example, is a prime example of a company that people aren't paying attention to. Second largest gold miner in Brazil, trading at you know less than five times normalized cash flows, a lot of attractive deposits that haven't even been explored yet, really good management team, which we spent a lot of time helping to appoint to the board of the company, really great board, um, has a lot of transformational events ahead of it. What we really like about Jaguar is it's ideally placed to consolidate the sector. And gold miners are kind of like diamonds. The larger they are, the higher the valuation you know, and the P multiples that they get. And so consolidating the sector is a very rewarding um, event. One thing that, and I apologize, I'm going on and on. One thing that we think is super interesting about gold miners that people don't understand is that we're actually running out of gold to produce. Ten years from now, we'll be producing 50% less gold per annum than we do today. Well, that's a we're, Bitcoin we're, argument, too. Well, it is a Bitcoin argument, but guess what? With gold, I can actually see a lot of use for it. There's use in jewelry. It's the only stable source of value that central bankers around the world and, and people around the world have agreed on as a source of uh, uh, savings, as an inflation hedge for hundreds of years and for millennia, and I think that will continue. Bitcoin, I am 100% confident, will be served at best. For, I, I think that, look, when this whole Bitcoin thing, when I started looking at bit, into Bitcoin, I thought I have problems with Bitcoin, but blockchain actually is a really attractive technology that has merits and uses. You will please have to note that no big mm. tech company has come out with 
like revolutionary technology using blockchain. And we wrote a paper well, about uh, Bitcoin. Uh, the European uh, Investment Bank sold bonds on the blockchain. James, we're going to have to continue this conversation later because uh, we're running out of time. But I think it's very fascinating. Love hearing your perspective. James Roste is the chief investment officer and founding partner of Coast Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.